Hello everyone and welcome back to Footprints. This month we're taking a look at tourism in Bath, how it's changed and developed over the centuries. The Bath Christmas markets are in full flow, drawing thousands of visitors to the city and enchanting their senses with the beauty of the lights, the sounds and the smells. And later on we hear from the Director of Tourism about what they're doing now to attract visitors. Kirsten Elliott takes me on a walk around Georgian Bath to find out what they did when they weren't bathing. But let's start with Paul Simons. Listeners may know him as the man who brought Thermae Baths to the city and who is now Chair of the Trustees of the Cleveland Pools Project. But you may not be aware he is also the Secretary General of the Great Spa Towns of Europe. This is a World Heritage Site covering seven countries and 11 internationally famous spa towns. Here he is to tell us all about it. The Great Spa Towns of Europe is an amazing achievement. There's 1,154 World Heritage Sites on the planet and Bath is one of only 22 that has a double World Heritage inscription. Bath was listed in 1987 uh, on the World Heritage List as the city of Bath. And then many other European spa towns, famous spa towns like Vichy in France, Spa in Belgium, Baden-Baden in Germany, all said, hey, if Bath's on the list, we want to be on the list. And UNESCO, who managed uh, the World Heritage Convention, said, no, you can't all join. But they then created something called serial transnational nominations, which is sort of thematically based. And to cut a long story short, for the last 10 years, uh, I've been managing a project which in the end whittled the most important spa towns in Europe down to 11, of which Bath is obviously one. So Bath uh, was the only one. The other 10 were all new. And uh, the Great Spa Towns of Europe was inscribed on the World Heritage List last year in 2021. And it's an incredible achievement for Bath to be one of only 22 sites globally that have a double inscription on the World Heritage List. And the most frustrating thing to me is that nobody knows about it. Uh, the other 10 towns all over Europe had massive parties. You know, obviously in France, they drank a lot of champagne. And in, in the Czech Republic, they had a lot of fireworks. And in, in Germany, they had a lot of music. Uh, but we didn't do much. But it is an incredible achievement. And it's been a great project. And a, a result of which we've learned so much more about the importance of Bath uh, and the importance of the whole spa phenomena in Europe, which created many, many things, which I hope we'll have a moment to talk about, tourism being one of them. We definitely will. So take us through some of the history of Bath Spa. I mean, we know that it goes back to the Romans, but presumably before that even. And so, you know, everybody starts with Bath at the Romans. But when the Romans got here, they, they found uh, ancient British Celtic people living here in the city. They were using the hot springs. Uh, maybe it was handy for hunting animals, but at the same time, it was nice and warm. And they probably got in the water as well and enjoyed it because it would be comfortable. It would be comforting. Uh, and so I think ancient people knew about hot springs and there's evidence all over the world that they've been used for thousands and thousands of years. So as well as having a mythical uh, element to them, uh, probably we'd call it a spiritual element as well, uh, they probably also discovered they had healing properties way, way back then. Many people know that when the Romans got here, they didn't beat everybody up and imprison them and dominate them. They assimilated with them. And that's the whole name of Aquae Sulis, which is the Roman name for Bath. Is Sulis 
is an adaptation of the ancient uh, Celtic god of Sol, the sun, which they discovered people worshipping that when they got here. And they assimilated even with the, the spiritual beliefs of the people already here using the thermal waters. And they didn't just completely dominate it with their own thoughts. And I think that's really quite an incredible thing and a very clever thing that they did. But of course, they were amazing engineers as well, and they knew exactly what to do with all this hot water, and they built the incredible Roman baths. Which we know and love today, and of course we now got the modern ones, but before we come on to them, just let's think about over the centuries, how has Bath Spa developed? Tell us a little bit about what's happened since the Roman times, because we sort of jump often from the Romans to the Georgians, don't we? Yes, we do, and in doing so, we miss some really interesting stories on the way. When we built Therme Bath Spa, and, and it was a millennium project funded by the lottery, but it wasn't a heritage project. And we told them we were reinventing Bath for the fifth time in its history. So if you consider that the first time Bath was invented as a famous spa, it was the Romans, obviously. Uh, but then we have the dark, what's called the Dark Ages, and we have a famous Anglo-Saxon poem that talks about the ruined thermal baths in the city in the 6th century. We do know that when the Normans came to the UK in the 11th century, 11th and 12th century, and built a very large cathedral in Bath, which was twice the size of the current abbey, that they, through the monastic period, controlled the hot springs. And they use them as part of the monastic foundation. And actually, the religious foundations in those days, were they were very clever business people as well. And they used the hot springs in Bath to create pilgrimage. Either the myths or the, the strong evidence of the healing qualities was something that the monastic foundation, the religious foundation, would have promoted and attracted visitors back then in, in the 11th and 12th century to come to the city because of this amazing natural phenomenon of, of, of the hot springs. And therefore, you can argue that pilgrimage is the first form of tourism. Well, if we then fast forward to the 16th century, and a chap called Henry VIII fell out with the Roman Catholic Church big time and confiscated their lands and took them over, and the city council, in a way, was created and became the controllers of the thermal springs. And by the reign of Elizabeth I, granted the citizens of Bath a royal charter, it still exists and hangs in the mayor's parlour in the Guildhall, and it says very clearly in that royal charter that the citizens own the thermal springs and they are managed on their behalf by the burghers of the city or the merchants and the council, as we now call them, on their behalf. And that's still law in this country. So the council then developed the spa with business people. And we know that the baths were being used throughout the 16th and 17th century as well. So that's the third iteration. And then we get the Georgians who really had a, 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 had a few ideas as to what to do with these natural hot springs. Uh, and for the sort of fourth iteration of Bath being a great spa, decided to pull down a complete medieval city. They weren't thinking about heritage when they built Georgian Bath. They were thinking about the future. They were building a modern utopia. So they had no qualms about completely destroying uh, the whole medieval city and building what we now know as Georgian Bath. And they, as we know, built amazing things and created a whole society around the spa function. And that's why the rich and the famous met there. They built fine houses or rented really fine apartments 
the aristocracy had townhouses in the spas and they would move from one to the other for uh, different times of the year and for fashionable activity. I've mentioned those four great eras, the Romans, the monastic period, the Elizabethans and the Georgians. And then we lost the spa. We didn't we didn't actually lose the spa function really until the 1970s, which is a tragedy in itself. And I think it's scandalous that it happened. If you look at the the way spas in continental Europe are still integrated in the health system, ours should be too. In 1948, when the National Health Service was created, eight of the great spa facilities in, in our spa towns, including those with cold water, as well as Bath with its hot water and Buxton, were incorporated into the NHS. In 1974, in Bath, the uh, hot bath in particular and the cross bath were uh, stopped being used by the health service. They were part of our hospital in those days. We've gone th- down the centuries, Paul, and we've arrived hopefully at the modern day then. So you are known as Mr Bath Spa. Tell us about the baths that you were project managing and creating for the millennium. You very kindly say I'm known as Mr. Baspar. I don't know who said that, but I was head of tourism in the late 90s in the city. And the millennium was coming and we all got a bit excited about that. And we needed a project to celebrate the millennium. And I I put a an idea together with one or two colleagues and we presented it to the council and said, yeah, we really should revive the spa and the use of the thermal springs. People from all over the world came to Bath, knowing it's a famous spa, looked at the hot water in the Roman baths and then said, right, oh, this is wonderful. Where can we now go and bathe in it? And we said, sorry, you can't. And they said, you guys must be crazy. You've got all this wonderful water and you don't let people bathe in it. I don't mean this flippantly, but it it was a no-brainer, an absolute no-brainer. We had to revive the spa and the use of thermal waters and this wonderful natural gift we get in the city It flowed through the Roman baths and then we put it in the river. You know, I mean, we've changed our ideas big time now, haven't we? Now we we now use the outflow from the Roman baths to heat the abbey. At least we take the heat out of it now and use that. And so it's a very long story, but we actually put a project team together. One night we went to a council meeting. There's a team of three of us. We went and presented the concept of applying for lottery money to celebrate the millennium. And that money was to be used to rebuild the thermal baths and I said to the council that night I think we stand a really good chance but there's no guarantee but you've got to give me 300,000 pounds to put this project together and put a project team together and do all the work and if we're successful we can revive the spa and if we're not successful you're going to lose 300,000 pounds you know that was a quite a tough decision but the best decision Bath and North East Somerset Council ever did and I think this is back in 1997 when they were a very fledgling new new unitary authority, they actually agreed that night to speculate £300,000 on the spa project. And it was amazing, amazing thing for them to do. And as you say, the rest is history, because then we put the project together. We had an international architectural competition. We also had a European competition for an operator. We went through many trials and tribulations. It costs a lot more than we thought. It was delayed for all sorts of reasons. But now everybody's forgotten all those problems because since 2006, it's been opened. It's revolutionised tourism in the city. It's why many more new hotels have been built in Bath through a financial crisis from 2009 to 2015. They were still building new hotels in Bath throughout that 
because we created a reason for people to stay longer uh, and enjoy the city, not just for its wonderful and amazing heritage, because you could then go and bathe in it in a very modern facility, which is good for wellness and well-being, which is something we all now appreciate. So that's the fifth iteration of the spa. Therme Bath Spa is, is, is the fifth time in, in 2000 years that the spa has been revived. And in reviving it, I honestly believe we, we've revived the city's raison d'etre and we've revived the economy of the city in doing so. So um, I would say that wouldn't happen. I mean, it, it was an amazing project. For me, it was a phenomenal privilege and honour to be able to lead the team that delivered it. And uh, I've worked on many wonderful historic projects, but yeah, to me, it's the greatest project in my life. And uh, I, I'm so proud of it and so happy that I've, I just sort of was here at the right time in the right place to be able to do that. It was wonderful. We love Bath Spa, we love the baths, but what influence have they had on the world? What What's their impact? I believe the impact has been very significant, but it's very understated and it's not often talked about in the history books because, yeah, I mentioned that Bath was first listed on the World Heritage List of UNESCO in 1987. And in 1987, it talked about the architecture, of course. <laughs> it, it talked about the urban plan and it talked about the hot springs, the very obvious things. But when we developed uh, this 10-year project on the great spa towns of Europe, we were presenting a very different view of, of the history of spa towns. And it, it's quite interesting how our view of history has changed in those 30-odd years since Bath was first inscribed. Of course, the architecture is still very important. It's very well looked after. It's in very good condition. And the city is amazing for the urban planning uh, of the Georgian era. But... I often say you can look at a building and the, and the building is really fantastic. But actually, what's really important, what's more important is why was it built and what happened inside it? And then we started to investigate that in a great deal more detail. And I've mentioned the diversions already, the social life around a spa town. So that that developed because you, you, know, you just can't use the water all day long. But in doing so, we've discovered that the social boundaries were broken down through the late 18th century through the 19th century. I mean, at the end of the Georgian era, women couldn't go into a coffee house in London without a chaperone or, or their, their husband and weren't allowed to read newspapers unless, unless uh, the man gave permission or, or oversaw that. But in, in spa towns, those social norms were relaxed and women could have a lot more freedom and they could go into coffee houses on their own and they could read newspapers and, and they could have a social life. Uh, another interesting phenomenon is that the uh, royalty and aristocracy, who you could never get near to in a capital city, you could never meet them. When they came to spa towns, they used to dress in civilian clothing. They didn't wear their uniforms and everything else. And that sort of social barrier slowly eroded. So as well as the spa towns being the destination where the rich and the famous went and the aristocracy and then the, the growing industrialists and the middle classes, we supported the health through the charities in the spa towns of the elderly, uh, the ill, the poor as well. And without dwelling on it too long, because it's almost a story in itself, that led to the provision of healthcare for people who couldn't afford it. And it's the essence of what we now call a welfare state in Western democracies. And what we now accept as a national health service and a welfare state where government provides for the health of the people was a concept that I personally believe 
originates in the spa towns. And I believe it's a remarkable, a remarkable thing. And we need to look at it a lot more. We need to appreciate it for being at the forefront of the thinking in the early 20th century that created what we now call our National Health Service. And I think that's utterly fantastic. Thanks so much to Paul Simons for setting out the five iterations of Bath Spa. Now it's time to go for a walk. Let's go with Kirsten Elliott, who many of you will know from the Walking Festival. She leads many walks. She's a Mayor's Guide Emeritus. And I asked her to take me on a walk as though we were Georgian visitors to Bath. So we start here in Queen Square, which is complete by 1735. And how wonderful it must have been because the roads were appalling. I mean, roads were really bad, not as bad as they are in some parts of the country, but really pretty grim. And so you're really pleased to have got here. As you came in through the city gates, you'd have been greeted by the Abbey Bells. And as you either got to your lodgings or once you were in your lodgings, you'd be greeted by the city waits, that's musicians, but you had to give them money. That's just the start of your expenses. So what you might want to do next is think about what you're going to do. You could be going to go to the pump room first thing, but I think we should be heading off for the baths. But we can't just go by the modern routes because we have to take a devious route because we have to find a break through the city wall. So we would have been going along Quiet Street and then dropping down um, through to uh, Trim Bridge and that way there is an opening in the city wall in 1735. We shall go in a special little sedan chair which can come right up to your room and pick you up, you'll be in your bathing clothes and take you off to the bars. That's what we're going to do. If you go into buildings that have got like a big turning circle as the stairs go round, you know there were lodging houses and that's to give them room to get round. And the bulge in the front is for their gouty feet. Fab, come on then. Right, let's go down here to the baths. This house here was a, a lodging house where actually at one time one of the daughters of George II stayed. And of course it had a wonderful view, it looked right down the river valley and was very close to the baths. So we're coming down here and this is where two of the hot springs come up. So until quite late you were still using the baths that were like this in the, in the 17th century and we know what they look like because they're drawings of them on, on a map. So the original hot bath was in the centre of Hot Bath Street. In the 1770s, John Wood the Younger moved it to one side and designed the lovely little building that you see there now. I'm a big fan of John Wood the Younger because he's an early modernist. He was actually on form should follow function long before Louis Sullivan said it. And behind that was the little leper's bath, but the fashionable one was the cross bath. And so you might have been brought here in your little sedan chair and, and gone in and you would have been wearing if you were a woman you would have been wearing like a loose canvas uh, shift or long petticoat and it was almost certainly yellow because there's lots of iron in the water so it's going to go yellow so you might as well start off with it yellow very often a hat because the baths are open to the sky and you would have in front of you a little japanned bowl or a little tray with flowers on and extra patches because, you know, it was very fashionable to wear 
little patches stuck on your face. Originally to cover blemishes and later they just became fashionable. But when you get in, the steam coming off, the patches did not stick as kindly as they ought. And that's important because where you stuck the patches had a meaning. So if you stick it decorously in the middle of your right cheek, you are a married lady. That's what you're telling the world, I'm a married lady. But if you have it down by your lip, it sends a very different message. So you can imagine if the patch slipped down, <laughs> you could be sending the wrong message. And the gentlemen would then, they weren't supposed to swim, but it says they would swim up and then fling their arms out. And then when you come out, you would be helped out. And there was a bath guide then, was a lady, nearly always a lady, who would help you round the baths. And when you came out, you'd be taken into changing rooms and you'd be wrapped up in towels, your wet clothes pulled off, wrapped up in towels. Wow. And then you'd be back into that little sedan chair and be carried home. However, you might not be going to go bathing. You could have gone to the pump room. We won't go there today because I think Abbey Churchyard is going to be full of wooden huts ready for the Christmas market. But there you would... You would drink the water and you would meet your friends and you would chatter away and might dance a bit to the music. And then, of course, you'd want breakfast. There were coffee houses. But by 1759, 1760, the spring gardens, a pleasure garden on the other side of the river is open. And there you could have public breakfast. So you'd meet your friends there as well and have all sorts of things to, to eat and, and drink. It's roughly where the wreck is now. And if you'd gone home, then you might want to have a, a dancing class with your dancing master. Oh. And your dancing master didn't just teach you how to dance. He taught, you, he taught gentlemen how to remove the hat. He, you know, it was a very stylized world. And so even the right way to walk into a room, the right way for ladies to sit. So that's all the sort of stuff that's going on. But you might want to go shopping so you might want to go to the markets, but you might want to go up to some posher shopping. So we're moving through the period, and on the way, you'll want to go to church. Now, obviously, at the start, you'd have gone in the abbey, but as the city developed, they started to build what they called proprietary chapels, and there was the one in the corner of Queen Square. And the great thing about them, for the rich and wealthy, was that you had to pay to go in. It kept the poor, the hoi polloi, out. And they were heated, because this is exactly the right time of year to be going round Bath, November, because the popular season starts in October, and ran through to Christmas, then there was a break for Christmas, and then started again. The proprietary chapel for this part of town was the octagon and this was madly fashionable and Hetty Thrale when she came she said we were packed like seeds in a sunflower which I think is a wonderful description and of course this is where William Herschel establishes himself as as organist but having been to church you've then got the afternoon to while away another thing you might do you might go and look at Ralph Allen's tramway at Whitcomb they were fascinated by industry as well because it's all so new there was a tramway there they hadn't seen anything like it so this is the tramway bringing the stone down that's, from that's the mines right. yes. to build bath yes and this is of course what we featured in the last episode that's right and it was a tourist attraction 
thing that a lot of people would do would go parading. Now, we've got North and South parades. And a clever design by John Wood the Elder because people didn't want to look brown. Remember in Pride and Prejudice, they condemn Elizabeth Bennet because they say she's so brown because she goes out in the open air and stuff like that. Amy, she's caught the sun. Yes. So they didn't want that. So you had the North Parade. So in the summer, you could parade up and down on the north side. And in the winter, it was really sunny and warm on the south side. And all parading was, was walking up and down, meeting your friends, have a little bit of chit-chat. But there were other places to parade, especially once Royal Crescent gets built. So I think well, the next thing we should do is head up to the Royal Crescent. Where are we now? Well, we're actually in Queen Street, which was originally part of John Street. And we've got some very early shop windows because shopping Amy. becomes really a thing. So we're outside a shop called now Vintage and Rare Guitars. And we know these are early. We know they're before 1765 because they have got no fascia boards. There's nothing over to say what the shop is. They had hanging signs, as it has today. So if you see an old shop window like this and it has no fascia board, you know it's a very old shop front. Oh, I never knew that. Um, and also this one, you can also see where they would originally have had shutters. Because this sort of shelf at the bottom and, and that slot at the top, the slot is the shutter slot. Oh, yes. And then they, the shutters rested on the, on the shelves. There was no street lighting, so you can imagine they were really quite dangerous places. I mean, people got held up and, you know, there were footpads and stuff like that. And one thing that people go for if they've got really drunk and uh, something's upset them is windows. So tell me, Kirsten, who came to visit Bath in the Georgian times? Just about everybody, particularly Europe. I mean, you get a lot of French people come here, particularly at the time before the French Revolution, but while it's all boiling up for that, um, you get a lot coming. Um, the Duke and Duchess de Polignac come. You know, a lot of French people, a lot of white West Indians, but often bringing their black slaves and servants with them. Slavery wasn't really legal in this country. So if they kind of escaped and they could say, well, I'm in England, I can't be a slave. I mean, there was a big case about that. But I mean, you get all sorts of visitors, particularly musicians, because they, they come and play at the assembly rooms. And perhaps one of the most famous black musicians, and from what we know, perhaps one of the best violinists ever, is George Bridgetower. The Kreutzer Sonatas were written for him by Beethoven, and then they fell out. So Beethoven offered them to Kreutzer, who, I mean, was a wonderful violinist, and he said they were too difficult to play. That's how good Bridgetower was. But of course, there's no recordings, there's nothing to record him. But everything we know, he, he was absolutely phenomenal. So having picked up our sedan chair, and we're going to go up the gravel walk. Now, I know there are steps now, but that was the sedan chair route to go up to the Royal Crescent, and that's where we're going to go. Come on, then. When Jane Austen comes up here, again, we're, we're sort of 
into the almost into the 19th century but there were thousands of people and I mean it really took off once it was built uh, completed in the 1770s it became very popular not just to stay in because these were the, again the latest lodgings but it's the latest look in that you've got the view when you come up here you're looking out into the countryside and they were influenced by painters like Nicholas Poussin Claude Lorraine, um, Salvatore Rosa, who were doing all these paintings. So you would have this view across to the countryside beyond, and it would look like one of these Italian paintings. Look at this view. I mean, it is the most astonishing crescent, isn't it? You know, Bath was always quite forward-looking, and I think that maybe this is why in the 1830s it was such a radical city. It was regarded as the most radical city in the country and elected, you know, quite radical MPs. Who are we talking about? Well, people like John Roebuck. So we're into the 19th century, but, I mean, he's really radical. And there was also a soldier, Colonel Napier, who was also quite radical, you know, which kind of, I think the aristocracy thought he was rather letting the side down. What, what sort of things did he do? Well, he just supported what we all regard as normal human rights, but, I mean, a lot of people didn't like that, particularly once you get the French Revolution. And had the French Revolution not turned so bloody, I use that word advisedly, you know, I think we might well have had one here. But the other thing I should say, of course, is that at the start of the 18th century, it really is small. It's contained within the city wall, and there's about 3,000 people. By the end of the 18th century, it's expanded right up to Lansdowne Crescent, and there are over 30,000 people, of which I was talking about the number of black, primarily black African people, because they might have been brought here as slaves, some of them are as servants, and quite a few marry into the local population, mainly men, but also some women, and I suspect there were also some less regular arrangements as well. So it's quite interesting that there must be a lot of Barthonians who have a black ancestor. And also, I mean, some black people who came here were quite wealthy. I mean, some of them Oh, I always forget his name. He became High Sheriff of Monmouth. He was the son of a planter and an enslaved woman. Um, but I think because he's so wealthy, the society becomes colourblind. But also, there is this strange thing about if you come to England, can you actually be enslaved? There was this famous case in the 1770s with Lord Mansfield, who ruled that you know, he didn't think you could be. It just upsets me that people say, you know, oh, don't, they're rewriting history. Why are they rewriting history? Well, the answer is because history needs to be rewritten. And, and history changes. It is not a static thing. Rain's on its way, so let's Where get are we going? Fresh. Well, we're going to head for the assembly rooms. Okay. And we are going to a ball. Oh, we're going to a ball. Yes. And we'll finish up at the right, ball. Step. We... So here we are. Now, completing our walk, completing we're coming walk. here come for the main ball of the, the week. ball of the week, yes. Now, the assembly rooms in town were still competing, so they were on Mondays and Thursdays. These were on Tuesdays and Fridays, so it didn't clash. That was the idea. So you would go in, and the main ball was in the main ballroom...
so you'd have the musicians up in the musicians' gallery. It would be absolutely packed out. Again, thousands would pack into there. A couple of thousand people might go in. Gosh. And the, they would start with minuets, but the most popular thing, the people that people have really come for are the country dances. And what start out as real country dances, and they sort of go like that when they're dancing and sort of skip about, have now got proper steps. And they still sometimes have the clapping, but you do it like that, and you do it like that. Oh, a very elegant and refined. The gentlemen, the lace at their cuffs, the ladies, the lace at their elbows. So it's showing off lace, which may well be smuggled because it was taxed. Very expensive stuff. And a lot of the English country dances, like there's one called Christchurch Bells, uh, they are long dances. That is one couple after another. So bit by bit, the dance moved down the room. And the ones further down the dance are doing what they've really come for, is to chit-chat, because with a bit of luck, you are now with a gentleman, if you are a lady, especially a young lady, without the chaperone there to hear you. Halfway through, they would then have a break for refreshments, and it was like a buffet. The poor musicians would then have to move from the musicians' gallery there across to the other side and play. The great octagon was the card room, but there's so many people who just play cards that they then had to build the extension at the back. There's loads of stories of women gaming and losing money at the gaming tables. I think this one account was Lady Townsend has lost over £700 at the gaming table. Enormous sum. So we've got gaming going on in there, we've got dancing going on in there, we've got beautiful refreshments. But at 11 o'clock, it was all supposed to stop. So you're all supposed to go home, and then you'd start again the next day, all over again. And you could do that for about three months at a time. So there you go, 18th century day, done. <laughs> Kirsten, thank you so much. I feel like we've covered so much ground, not just physically, but historically. Thanks so much to Kirsten Elliott. Kirsten mentioned she used to be a mayor's guide and they offer free daily walking tours around Bath. You can find out more from the Visit Bath website, visitbath.co.uk. If you'd like to go on one of Kirsten's future walks, have a look on the website, aikmanpress.com. Finally, I caught up with Catherine Davis, Head of Tourism for Visit West. It was the first day of the Christmas markets and we met outside the Abbey, which was beautifully lit and made a fantastic backdrop to all the wooden huts below. Here she is. Bath Christmas Market is one of the most beautiful Christmas markets anywhere and that's not just me being slightly biased, it's me just being very honest. Um, the market's spread out across the city. It specialises in local producers. Some people have shops here, some people run delivery services and you, what you'll find here is artisan producers and opportunities to peruse and buy stuff that you might not find anywhere else and, and often not on the high street. And how long do they go on for? So 18 days, so it covers a couple of weekends. It's open until uh, the evening. Um, I think that's my favourite time is, is to arrive just as the sun's setting and then you get the lovely atmosphere and of course then legitimately having a glass of mulled wine while you're walking around. I tell you what, it's not just the sights because all the stalls are lit up with gorgeous little fairy lights but it's also the smells. The smells are just amazing, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Well, I was here last night. Um, it was the residence preview evening and, and there was a service in the Abbey for the stallholders. 
So as I left last night, even though everything was covered up, you could you still had a waft of malt wine, come, which which was really nice. It is. It's just the whole atmosphere, and you get it touches on all the senses. You say you, it looks beautiful, it smells beautiful. You've got this beautiful stuff that you know feels beautiful. So it's so special. Now you're director of tourism for Visit West, so that's wider than Bath. But just think, thinking about Bath, obviously we know tourists come to see the Abbey and they come to see the Crescents and the Georgian architecture, but there's more to Bath than that, isn't there? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, the thermal waters and, and a place of relaxation and wellness. I mean, Bath, I think, can legitimately claim to be the number one wellness destination in the UK, the only place where you've got hot, natural thermal waters. So to be able, especially this time of year, if, if you can get to Thermo Bath Spa and go in that rooftop pool and where your, your, your face is cold and your nose is cold, but your body's lovely and it's then how you manoeuvre yourself out of the water not to get cold so that's my favourite time of the year when you've got stars twinkling in the sky the architecture the history but also I mean one of the things is Bath's got an amazing food scene so you've got great food and drink here and you've also got some great venues like Comedia and the Forum and some of the small pubs like the Bell and the Grapes where you just find great music stand-up comedy event nights and and you know it's not something that traditionally Bath's known for, but, you know, you start to look at what's on here and it's phenomenal. And Bathscape's obviously around the landscape around mm. Bath and UNESCO talks about the landscape as being part of the World Heritage Site. It's not just the architecture. Tell me about that and why people come to Bath for the landscape. I mean, the landscapes, because it's, it's green setting and you've got the Bath Skyline Walk, the National Trust, which, which is a circular route around the city, which is just beautiful. The fact that you can stand here and, and see beautiful green fields, the fact that you're close to the river and you've got river walks as well, um, great cycling. As I mean, talked about the fact that it's not just Bath, but you know, being able to cycle between Bath and Bristol, river trips, stand-up paddleboarding. It's just that whole sense of closeness to nature. I think is really important as well. So tourism must be really important for the income for the city. Who benefits? Who are the main beneficiaries of tourism in Bath? Well, there's lots of beneficiaries of tourism. Um, in, in terms of visitors that are coming in, you've got the obvious ones like the visitor attractions and the hotels. And also, don't forget that it's not just the money that goes into them, it's what they pay their staff and how their staff spend. So sustaining um, really important jobs. But also retail and food and drink. Actually, it's the retailers and, and those working in the food and drink industry that, that benefit most from visitor spend because they're picking up people who come for the day as well as those who stay for a, a night or a couple of nights. Because even if you come for a day, you got to eat and you're going to shop and buy something. So transport providers and then obviously that money that people are paid to be here, that goes back into people's council taxes and it goes back into the travel industry. And the VAT, don't forget VAT is 20% on anything to do with hospitality and food and drink and attraction. That then goes back into, you know, in, into government. So um, the visitor, I mean, that's why we refer to it as the visitor economy rather than tourism, because it's a phenomenal part of not just Bath's local economy, but regionally and nationally. So what's, what's next? What's next for tourism? Who are you trying to attract next? What are you laying on? Oh, goodness. So at the moment, as of today, one of my colleagues is in Brussels doing a presentation to associate European Association buyers. Another one is in Paris 
at an event with French travel trade buyers. We've just come off the back of World Travel Market. So in terms of our development of our international visitor market, um, we've seen North Americans, Australians, uh, Canadians as well, particularly noticeable this over this year. So our job is to maintain the programmes, make sure that we continue to attract those overseas visitors, working with our uh, domestic travel partners like GWR, working in partnership with Visit England to make sure that we've got our domestic market sorted for next year. We're looking at all the exciting events that are happening for next year. We've got the World Pentathlon Championships coming to Bath next August, which is you know World Championships here. The usual festival and events programmes are happening. Um, and of course the walking festival. Of course the walking festival. We love walking and working with Bathscape. So yeah, in September when that happens, but you know, for us, it's about making sure that that visitor economy is sustainable year round and looking ahead to some big anniversaries coming up in 24 and 25 with people that you know, we'll be sharing more about in, in due course. We've got exciting stuff happening with the assembly rooms, waiting to see you know, the exciting stuff that happens with the fashion museum. So we're not just planning for what happens in the next few months, we're, we're looking to work with partners what's happening in the next few years. And it's about making sure that the business is as sustainable in January and through to March as it is in the summer. And then there'll be the wellness and wellbeing campaign that runs in the new year. So yeah, it never stops really. <laughs> And do you love your job, Catherine? Yeah, I do. Is it obvious? Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> I've been working in the industry for 22 and a half years and, and in other tourism businesses before that. And it's a privilege because we get to work with some really exciting people. We get the opportunity to do some really exciting things. And it's knowing that some of the stuff that we do can make a difference to local businesses and local people. It just is, is really special. Thank you so much for talking to me today on this glitteringly gorgeous evening. Thank you. I'm glad it didn't rain on us like it did earlier. Well, that's it for this episode of Footprints. Thank you for joining me. And don't forget, as always, you can listen to all the previous episodes anytime you like. Footprints is available on all podcast platforms. So please, please do like, subscribe and of course share with your friends, family and colleagues. For more information on Bathscape, visit the website bathscape.co.uk. This is the final episode of 2022 and we'll be back in January with a review of the whole year. Footprints was hosted and produced by me, Pony Harmer.